Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Did you guys see uh, Celebrity Family Feud with Bachelor Nation versus Bachelor Squad? No. It was actually pretty great. My hero, Michelle, from last season, got 173 points on the big money at the end, but all you need to do is have Whoa. two people combine for 200 to win it. And then Nate came out and won it. And unfortunately, this all was recorded before they broke up. So that's the big news. I think you think the relationship surviving was the underdog, right? Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Jordan, you still don't want to go on dates where Gabby from this season sucks the whipped cream out of dispensers? <laughs> yeah, that was disturbing. Very disturbing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I still think her dates are a lot more fun than Rachel's. You know why? Because she goes on them? Because <laughs> she's on them. Yeah. Yes. If you like watching a girl say yeah 74 times and nod her head and not have any other conversation, Gabby is your woman. Well, I like it a lot better than walking back and forth aimlessly through Bruges until I run into Jesse Palmer. I mean, that kind of sounds like a good day, actually. <laughs> Get a waffle. Get some steps in. Hey, there's Jesse Palmer. Telling me that my plans are canceled. Yet again, for the 75th time on this show, they are going to cancel something and somehow Rachel's going to cry about it. Yeah. 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 Eight to shoot. Paul, the runner. Loose ball. It's good. With 4.4 to go. Shannon. Don't want to fall. Shannon from the corner. The cry goes up both far and near for underdog, underdog, underdog. Joe Namath, number 12, has been the one big sidelight. He's come down here and he says the Jets are going to win. In fact, he doesn't even predict it. He says, I guarantee a Jet victory. Oh my goodness, I even in the guys league. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. Underdog, Underdog. They're bigger, faster, stronger, more experienced, and on paper, they're just better. Oh my goodness! The longest shot has won the Kentucky Derby! Red strike and a stunning, unbelievable upset! Shock it all in college basketball! Underdog! Underdog! I expect you boys to go out there and not take this team lightly because I promise you, they're going to come at you with everything they've got. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. You believe in miracles? Yes! By George, the dream is alive. Speed of lightning, roar of thunder, fighting all who rob or plunder, underdog. I guess there's only one thing left to do. Win the whole fucking thing. Yes, it's the underdog days of August. And we are back with some serious football for you. In a little while, we're going to dig into the next step of our quest for fantasy football dominance. We're going to go inside, inside the offensive formation to the slot to see 
if there's an advantage to be found by targeting guys who get lots of targets in that area, or if the NFL has adjusted and maybe we need to look to the outside for some better receivers. But first, college football is nearly upon us. And for a crew that's made its claim to fame by identifying giant killers in college basketball, we are looking for big underdogs in a sport that doesn't produce any. Yeah. What is the Cinderella equivalent in college football? There is none. (laughs) You can't. You get like a random regular season game like Appalachian State over Michigan. But oh my God, guys, when we started doing the research on teams that either have moved up significantly from the preseason polls to the end of the year or made it to the college football playoff. Listen to this, guys. In the history of the college football playoff, 26 of the 32 teams that made it were preseason top 10 teams. That's insane. That's wild. So last year, it's like as good as it gets. Cincinnati gets to the title. Like being a successful underdog in college football means you get to the national championship game to be crushed by Alabama. Is that as good as it gets? Cincinnati was a preseason top 10 team. They weren't even a big underdog. So they don't even count. Yeah. It's crazy. Wow. Look, the sport is not built the same way college basketball is to begin with, right? There's fewer Division I football teams than there are Division I basketball teams. We're talking about a four-team playoff versus a 68-team field for basketball. So there's more opportunities for upsets. That said, like when you can basically pencil in Alabama to be in the playoff every year, and then it's just the same few big programs alternating spots to play against them, there doesn't leave a lot of room for upsets. And yet, we found a few, right? So there were six teams... Going back to 2010, Jordan, in your handy spreadsheet here, put together six teams that we were considering Cinderella's. And pardon me, my voice, um, battling some uh, some vocal cords carnage by uh, by COVID, SARS-2, whatever we want to call it. So apologies in advance on that. Uh, anyway, so there's six teams. We have historically over the past 12 years – Six teams that were unranked in the AP preseason poll that went on to be ranked top five in that same poll by the end of the season pre-bowl. So we're not talking about final season. We're just looking at right before the bowl games because, you know, players decide to not play in the bowl games and there's just a lot of noise in that. Well, right. Who put themselves in position to play for potentially a national title or a playoff spot? Right. So the six teams. Again, not ranked preseason. Listen to these plucky underdogs. <laughs> Last year, Michigan. <laughs> then you have to go back to 2016, Penn State. Wow. Look, I don't know how Michigan and Penn State were able to build teams that became top five squads playing with such a small fan base, such limited facilities. It's like the College of Charleston. It really is. It gets better. 2013, Auburn. <laughs> how did Auburn put together in Alabama? How did they get... Any, any sort of talent there and any sort of resources. Also in 2013, big year for underdogs, mm-hmm. Michigan State. Actually, the Spartans, kind of underdoggy here. It's almost like the underdogs come from mistakes in the preseason polls as opposed to coming out of nowhere as unheralded programs. That just can't happen in football. Basically, when you think a big program is going to be down, that's when they bounce. Oh, but you want to talk about an unheralded program that not many people follow. Listen to this next underdog. 2012 Notre Dame (laughs) Fighting Irish. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Jordan, can we get the fight song? (laughs) 
Just because we like to enrage, or I do, like to enrage passionate fan bases, that team didn't have any business playing for a national championship anyway. So, (laughs) Are you one of these holier-than-thou people who are like, oh, they vacated the wins. We can't talk about them anymore. They actually had zero wins. Yeah, I just mean they won a bunch of close games and they they weren't that great. But if they have a good year, as it turns out, wherever they rank before the season, they'll always get into it, you know, the championship playoff. And then finally, our sixth team, you might have been thinking it in your head already because of last year's Michigan team and Jim Harbaugh, 2010 Stanford with a certain Andrew Luck at quarterback. Hmm. How about that? Hmm. So that's your six teams, Michigan, Penn State, Auburn, Michigan State, Notre Dame, and Stanford. Now, my question is, Jordan, what are some of the commonalities of those teams? We find anything that kind of brought those teams a common denominator amongst them? Well, other than the fact that they're all big teams from big conferences, (laughs) leading to the belief that if you're going to look for an underdog, basically find a team that usually is good, who was bad a year ago, and they'll bounce back. So one really interesting thing that you found digging into the research is all of those teams had a new coordinator on offense or defense. So something big changed in their coaching staff. Could that be just noise? Maybe, but it's certainly an interesting thing to follow. (laughs) That's Jordan's way of saying this is bullshit. This is (laughs) Tom's going to talk about this, and I think it's total red herring. I was about to praise you. I think it's an interesting path to follow as we look to find a current team that fits the mold. So, Tom, like, what do you think is going on there? Okay. Well, the reason why I looked into this was because Jim Harbaugh last year cleaned house once he got his. His deal, he just basically decided to redo the entire coaching staff, except for Josh Gaddis, who was a third-year guy. Go Deeks. Um, He was the offensive coordinator, but they cleaned house. Basically, every other coaching um, staff member, he went from like old gray beards and got a bunch of young guys, Mm -hmm. including Mike McDonald, um, who was promoted and brought in as the defensive coordinator. And it got me thinking, maybe that's it. Maybe... That's a market inefficiency in terms of predicting these teams is what if they bring in some new blood, some new fresh eyes, they revamp a whole entire side of the field, and that's why we're missing them as juggernauts. And so I looked into it, and it turns out in 2016, Penn State had a new offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator. In 2013, Gus Malzahn had a you know, obviously a new staff because he was brought in. Um, and then you had Michigan State had a new offensive coordinator. Notre Dame had a new offensive coordinator and Stanford had a new DC. So it got me thinking, keep an eye out for teams outside of the top 25 this year who have new coaching staffs. And it turns out just about everybody is Hiring a new defensive coordinator, offensive coordinator, not every team, but there's a lot of turnover in this position. So that's what you're getting at, Jordan, is, yeah, they did get new, fresh blood at the, you know, on their coaching ranks, but that happens every year because there's so much turnover in college football. So then another piece of this, we're looking at, okay, what are some other things that could be a harbinger of, of good things to come, right? Well, recruiting is the lifeblood of college sports, so... Maybe there's a trend in recruiting classes leading up to that season. So I looked at the four years, um, including that that current freshman class for each of these programs, to see where they were trending. So um, three of 
three of those teams had really, really outstanding recruiting classes uh, year after year. So Michigan last year had four top 25 classes in a row. Auburn in 2013 had four top 11 classes in a row. The Notre Dame team in 2012 had four top 25 classes. But there were some outliers too. Stanford had uh, their recruiting pick up the two years uh, leading up to that 2010 run. They had a 20th ranked class and the 25th ranked class. But the years before, they were 50th and 52nd. Where are you getting these recruiting rankings, by the way? There's a lot of noise there. A lot of noise. 247 Sports. You know, Rivals has has their old database going back. Just wanted for journalistic purposes to, yes. to cite our sources here. Do your personal favorites have any weight in this process at all? I am not ranking uh, recruiting classes, sadly. So all the teams had at least one top 25 recruiting class in the last four years. Most had multiple top 25 recruiting classes. And that's a way to sort of weed out programs who may have fit the bill in terms of the new coordinators who are unranked to finished the previous season with a so-so record, we can take out those teams that haven't picked it up in recruiting. So that's another way to kind of narrow down our search for underdogs. Were you surprised at that? The recruiting, were you surprised that it wasn't as strong or that were you surprised at how strong that relationship was with the recruiting rankings? I mean, I wasn't really surprised. I, I guess I expected recruiting to be a signal that a team was improving. I probably was a little more surprised to see the the two-week Stanford classes in there and and that Michigan State wasn't better than 32nd, 34th, and 37th in the three years leading up to their run. The other tricky thing as we'll get into when we look at this year's teams is, is the recruiting rankings become a little um, less clear in what they mean because the transfer portal teams are le- losing so much talent, especially when they go through a coaching change that ha- you know maybe a team we might be interested in has pulled in a bunch of top 15 classes in a row, but how many of those players have they actually retained? Well, that makes me want to ask about, because you used a phrase that has stayed with me, which is that the conferences are getting top heavy with respect to the teams in the conferences, but also across conferences, college football is really top heavy. So the transfer portal does seem to be one of the very few ways that a could upset that long-term pattern for particular teams, even though over the long haul, it's probably only going to help the really great teams get even better, right? So do we even have, do we have ways to measure the impact of the portal yet? Are there people ranking transfer classes the way they are ranking recruiting classes yet that we trust? Is there a way to go look that up somewhere? Who's had the best transfer class? Do we know that the way that we know who's had the best two or three recruiting classes? Oh, wow. So apparently 247 sports. Yeah. yeah. Look at that. So here's the current 2022 transfer football rankings from 247. Number one, USC. Okay. See, so I had a reason for asking that because I think, according to ESPN, which I think is more subjective, but still, they got the best quarterback. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you have against ESPN? We'll save that for another show, although it wouldn't necessarily <laughs> be a long show, but that that's not the subject for today's pod. So, but, but USC is ranked 15th right now in the in the poll. So like kind of underdoggy, but not super underdogs. Number two on that list though, Ole Miss at 82. Mm. Ole Miss. Yeah, they're 24th. So they could, if they, if they get into the playoff, that is definitely an underdog Cinderella story. What's interesting is it doesn't seem to indicate players going out, right? So if you brought in 17 great transfers, 
but you lost an equal number of five stars or more going out because of your new coach. There should be like a net transfer rate. Jordan, I think you should get on that. I think you could you could make a huge, yeah. huge advance, net net transfer rating. Basically, we have a lot of work to do here. What's really interesting, though, I think, is that in the research we did, as as predictable as the college football playoff teams tend to be and the top five, like there is a lot of change in the top overall top twenty five from beginning to end of the season. The average over over the length we studied since two thousand ten was nine point seven teams per season ended up in the pre bowl top twenty five who weren't there in the preseason. You know, obviously means the same number are dropping out, and we'll look into potential busts maybe next week, guys. Look at this. From last year's top 25 preseason, the number seven team was unranked by the end of the year. 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 19, 20, 21, 22, and 25 were all unranked at the end of the season, which is kind of an anomaly, but uh, it just goes to show that we can't really take these preseason rankings as gospel. Um, and what I found interesting, Jordan, is if you look at outside of the top eight, so nine through 25, mm-hmm. more than half of the teams fall out of the ranking by the end of the season. So it really is almost a crapshoot after the top eight, which speaks to your finding or your thought that this is such a top heavy sport that outside of the you know, inside of the top eight, you have a pretty good idea of who's going to basically f- get to that finish line at the end. After that, man, we're throwing darts. And I think that it's even more dart like in the last couple of years because of COVID. You had teams playing shortened seasons that first year, right? The Big Ten and the Pac-10 played limited schedules. Uh, recruiting was affected with the way high schools were operating. So I think you had a less of a less of a read on who was good than maybe in normal circumstances. And then you throw the transfer portal on top of that, where players are changing teams without sitting out a year. And and it is harder to get a read on programs. So I think that's something we can look at in, in greater depth, those those other those other programs. And then um the other interesting thing is is it's not just the unranked teams that have the potential to make big moves. So one of the biggest movers we found in our, in our history of studying this was 2010 Auburn, right? They ended up preseason, uh, the postseason number one. They moved up 21 spots. They were ranked 22nd in the preseason poll. So they don't qualify for that list we were talking about of unranked to top five, but that's still a huge move. So we can look into some of those teams as well. But for a little parlor game today, let's let's stick with unranked teams who have a chance to to crack the playoff, shall we? Last year, I'm, I'm a little upset by this for reasons that are pretty obvious to those who've been listening to this podcast. Sam Hartman, our quarterback, <laughs> I say our, the plural we, the collective mm. we, Wake Forest, Heisman Trophy candidate, quarterback Sam Hartman, announced this week that he is dealing with a non-football related medical issue and is out indefinitely. And the coach, uh, Dave Clawson, has indicated that he is going to return at some point this season. We just don't know when. Um, and asked all of the Wake Forest and college football community to send their thoughts and prayers to the family. It is um, big news in Winston-Salem, but also big news um, if we're going to be heartless about this. 
for other teams in the ACC. So last year, UNC was one of the top ranked teams in the country. I think they were top 10 and they fell out, did not have a great year. Jordan, you can't possibly pick the Tar Heels to be your underdog this year, right? You can't possibly do it. I mean, my favorite program in all of sports. How could I look away? Yes, they fit <laughs> no. a number of the signals that we've been talking about. Oh, oh Don't oh. do it. You're doing it. New defensive coordinator, Gene Chizik. Here are their recruiting class rankings leading into this year. 2019, they were 30th. 2020, they were 14th. 2021, 14th. 2022, 11th. That is a lot of talent coming into the program. You mentioned last year they were a preseason top 10 team. They didn't live up to the hype. Finished with a 6-7 and seven record. They lost their quarterback now. Their big hype, Sam Howell. You know, so the, the hype isn't there this year. It's the perfect time to jump up and surprise some people. They don't have Clemson on their schedule this year. Their toughest games are at home. I'm not saying I'd put a ton of money on them to make the college football playoff, but they're in a weaker conference. They've got some things working in their favor. If someone's going to come from this outside the top 25 group, why not the Tar Heels? <laughs> yeah. I mean, can we get Hubert Davis as the coach over there? Can he make another run in the tournament on the other side? Yeah, I'm just going to go rewatch some highlights of the Final Four, baby. I'm all in. <laughs> Well, I see your UNC, and I'm going to go with another three-letter team, LSU. Can you hear it? LSU, the Tigers. I just noticed, hmm, 2012 Notre Dame. Who was their head coach, Peter? Uh, Brian Kelly, maybe? Yeah. Yes, it was Brian Kelly. I'll leave it at that. Okay. Anything else I have to say would be tasteless, so it is, it is Brian Kelly. Yeah. Brian Kelly... LSU head coach now left the Notre Dame job and now has taken over the LSU program, which has been a recruiting powerhouse in recent years. Jordan, you noted fifth ranking four years ago, four and then three top five and three out of the last four years. And this year it's at number 12. And the other thing is they picked up the offensive coordinator from Cincinnati last year. Mike Denbrock is now their head um, offensive coordinator. So LSU has some questions at the quarterback position, but <laughs> so think? do most of these teams. Yes, but most of these teams that come out of nowhere with the exception of Andrew Luck in 2010. Big reason why no one likes them going into the year is because who's their quarterback? A lot of these are quarterback competitions. I think, uh, what was it? Auburn in 2013, when they made their run, they had a new coach and Nick Marshall was at a community college the year before <laughs> and he wasn't even a, on the offensive end. He was a, he was a cornerback at his previous stop in the NCAA. I think he was at Georgia, cornerback at, cornerback at Georgia. So like, yes, when you're taking these long shots, they're long shots for a reason and this quarterback situation isn't settled and I'm still going at Brian Kelly and because they got their what? It may be the top wide receiver in the country in Kayshawn Boutte. Um, I've got LSU Tigers making a run through the SEC. Might not win it all, but you heard it here first. They will get to the playoff. I was eyeing LSU as well, but here are a couple things that gave me pause. We talked about, again, it's hard to, to count those previous recruiting classes as evidence of talent in the program. When they were in the Texas Bowl last year, 
they had 39 players left who were on scholarship. So there's been a ton of attrition from that program. The other thing is there are a lot of other teams in the SEC on our list who have similar profiles to LSU in terms of new coach, good recent recruiting, et cetera. I don't want to spoil any names yet should Peter take one, but they all have to compete against each other. So there's just so much competition. Plus, you know, there's this little program named Alabama waiting, not to mention Georgia and Texas A&M. So it's just so hard for someone to come out of that conference. But Jordan, would you rather pick a team that's likely to dominate a lesser conference because they have a better shot of coming out of that? Or would you rather pick a team that if things break right, they win a conference that's almost guaranteed to give them a, a, like a great bowl, a great playoff? Yeah, like these teams that come out of nowhere, we ta- we joked about it at the top. They're coming from Big Ten programs like Michigan, Penn State, Michigan State, oh, Notre Dame. These are huge programs. But there's only one SEC, only one SEC team. Of six. Okay, great. I'm just saying because there's so much depth and there's Alabama. So I just think it's harder to get to, you're going to have to run the table. How many ACC teams are there on this list? How many? And you picked one. That's true. Yeah. All I'm saying is it's harder for a team to run the table in the SEC and you pretty much have to go undefeated, maybe have one loss to be a top five team. Right. Well, Brian Kelly's done it before. He's going to do it again. Peter, do you have a team? I was wondering if either of you guys had taken a look at a team with an even better recruiting class uh, in the past year than either of the ones you mentioned. I'm talking about Penn State with a new defensive coordinator with the sixth best recruiting class in the country this year with a number of close, agonizing losses in the Big Ten last year. Three points uh, to Iowa, um, three points lost to Michigan State. Um, ball, a couple of balls bouncing the other way. You know they were a top ten team for about half the season last year in the polls till those agonizing close losses. Um, you know James Franklin has had his ups and downs, but I like his overall uh, analytical approach to coaching. And um, now. Yes. Do they need do they need to settle their quarterback situation? Yeah, that would help. Um, should we be worried about uh, athletes decommitting from Penn State? Well, there have been a few. <laughs> uh, I don't know that it's a trend. I do think Penn State has to, as Franklin has talked about, push the envelope a little more on name, image and likeness. Like, you know, go out and spread the wealth a little. Wait, wait. Who's lost more of their top recruits? Penn State or Rachel? well as of seven hours ago probably penn state but i mean we're talking about i mean uh yes i also still love as a a long long shot mississippi state because for the reasons we talked about a couple of weeks ago um and i think that is the exact opposite situation of which jordan jordan's talking about with unc which is that if if the ball bounces the right way in a couple of big games from mississippi state they come out of a you know the best conference in the country but um i think yeah i think penn state's worth a look and it's a new new defensive coordinator manny diaz is what actually lands them along with the recruiting class right on our list of passing these screens that you guys put together about teams that come out of nowhere james franklin 2016 penn state did it once before doing it again i like the potential there i mean maybe sean clifford has a big senior season maybe one of the two big freshmen, it's looking like Drew Aller's the 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 top one of in, in preseason of the two. 
takes a step up. There's there's routes to a big season for that team. Yeah, especially since they they I mean they went just four and five in the conference last year. I think that could easily be you know one or at most two losses there. I'm looking at the coaches poll, you guys. Alabama, obviously number one. Ohio State, number two. Georgia, number three. They all got first place votes. And then at number eighteen, Texas got a first place vote. Do you think we need some transparency in the coaches poll? I want to know which coach picked Texas to end up number or gave a number one vote. They can't vote for themselves, right? They can't. No, but this is why you have to have a big voting pool. And of course we need transparency. The only thing that being non, being opaque, if that's the opposite of transparent, I think being opaque helps is people who don't want to put a lot of work into their vote because they don't want to have to explain it. Yes, vote in public. Submit your homework, you know, sub- submit your work when you write out the test form. Come on. Wow. That was very impassioned. I love it. So among the teams we didn't pick, there are a couple other teams worth eyeing. Wait, Again, Jordan, I- Jordan, are you not for transparency? Are you just going to skip over that? Jordan, did you vote for Texas? I'm moving on and I, I, I will neither confirm nor deny wow. that I did that. That is a non-denial wow. denial. I may secretly be a college football coach who voted for Texas. I was just going to say big reveal there. Big reveal. My research shows Jordan did not vote for Texas, but but apparently he's willing to defend them. It's okay. It's okay. So teams that we could have picked and didn't. Florida fits a lot of the same rubric as, as LSU, right? Uh, new coach, new system, new situation. A lot of good recruiting classes leading up to this. Ninth, ninth, twelfth, seventeenth. They actually have a quarterback. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Wow. Oh. Did you do that again? Wow. <sighs> yeah. yeah. Anthony Richardson. Yeah. Talented guy. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's a team to watch. Again, they're still competing against the rest of the SEC. Missouri, another SEC team. Last two classes getting better. 27th, 15th. New defensive coordinator. Really just take the whole SEC. And then you wonder if if Florida State can get anything going. They've uh, added Randy Randy Shannon as a new co-defensive coordinator. They've added a new offensive coordinator in Alex Atkins. And they've got the 19th, 22nd, 23rd, 20th recruiting classes coming in. And last, Auburn. They've done it before. New offensive and defensive coordinators. Again, strong lineage of recruiting, 11th, 7th, 19th, 21st. Any of those other teams strike a fancy or you know, you're sticking with your picks? I'm sticking with my pick and I'm just – it feels so dirty that I picked LSU as the underdog heading into this season after the Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase and they won the 2003-2007 titles. It's, it's like picking the Yankees at this point. As dirty as picking North Carolina, I don't think I will ever be able to shower enough to get rid of this feeling. <laughs> Penn State sent more players to the NFL in the draft than any team in the country. Plucky underdog. But seriously, what what the fuck is wrong with this sport? Like, this isn't – that's not fun. There's no St. Peter's in the mix, and now they're all going to be in two conferences. Like, what's the future of this shit? Well, let me take a stab at that by asking you a question, which is – for the purposes of mixing up that top heaviness, of churning the sport, even if it's just temporary, what if we looked at teams that were ranked, but ranked, let's say, in that eight to or nine or you know, 10 to 25 level, teams that were ranked, but actually, if a couple of things went right, could rather easily make the vault from being ranked, but at a low ranking, 
into the top five in the country. And specifically, I'm wondering, just jump back to USC for a minute. Um, you know, they got the best quarterback, the best receiver in the transfer portal. Um, they've had good recruiting classes. Why are they, I mean, they seem like a complete agent of chaos. Like they've blown up their whole team, brought new guys in either through the portal recruiting, entire new coaching staff. Um, maybe in a few years, they'll be up there with teams like Alabama or whoever who are always in the championship game. For right now, they're still plus 2,500 to win the national championship. Okay. Okay. They have the fifth best odds to win the championship. It's plus 2,500. Come on. This is the underdogs (laughs) podcast. Yeah. It's Peter's lukewarm uh, college football. But that's (laughs) because of what Jordan's talking about, which is the top three teams are all plus 400 or better, right? So, yes, yes, selective endpoints, Jackson. You can pick whatever top number you want. They have the fifth shortest odds to win it all. Wow. The number five team might crack the top four, Tom. Breaking news. But the gap between three and five is huge. All right, well, then who's ranked 10th or 12th? Who do you guys like that might be a better, uh, have a better shot than freaking North Carolina, even if they're ranked? Based on these screens or anything else? I mean, I am taking the 13th best odds. So. I mean, what's what's your subjective team that could legit vault into the top four? Yeah, who's going to stand up for USC? You know, USC just feels like they're not getting a proper spotlight nationally. They're not getting enough publicity? Can I get back to bashing college football for a second? Sure. Because it sucks. The playoff has to be expanded. At least, At least get one or two long shots into the playoff with a chance to do that. Give me some chaos that way, right? Give me an eight team playoff. We'll sneak a couple other teams in there. <laughs> Another other, a couple other yeah. uh, SEC teams. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah. Yeah. And then, Oh, you know, I'm sorry. Like I don't understand how anyone enjoys this conference expansion, the way it's going. You, you've no rivalries left. Everyone's going to be playing in a couple power super conferences. There's no room for anyone to come out of nowhere. A mid-sized program. It's, it, it becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's boring. I know. I kind of feel like you're, you're Abe Simpson. Old man yells at cloud right now. And? Yeah. <laughs> we want to expand the playoffs so that North Carolina can get wiped out in the Liberty Bowl, which is the new football championship bowl, 49 to 10. The problem's more structural than that. The problem is the unlimited, untrammeled concentration of all the best talent in the top programs, which over time is only going to get worse, which is why I'm wondering if, Yes, that's right. If USC or other teams that are taking quickest advantage of this could bring a little chaos to the system for a couple of years. But five years from now, I think Jordan's complaints will only be even more valid or more strident. That's right. Valid complaints, Tom. You hear that? Mm. What's going to stop any of this? What's going to reverse any of these trends? Is there is there any money ball trend or any financial trend or any conference trend? No, it's all it's all heading. It's all going in the wrong direction. Yep. It's all going in the wrong direction. Everything sucks. But we're coming at this as college basketball fans first, I would argue. Like, aren't we at heart college basketball fans over college football fans? 100%. And this is a podcast that was sprouted from the tournament, picking tournament wins, which is a totally different sport. Basically, what I'm getting at here is, Jordan, you're not going to be satisfied until there's 64 or 68 teams in the playoff. Look, none of us went to a, a, a school with any kind of football tradition. So I get it. People like to sit in big stadiums and drink beer and watch, you know, sing their fight song and all that crap. All I'm saying is, wait a minute, all that crap? Wow. 
Wow. How dare you besmirch wow. Ricky Prohl? Wow. Wake Forest's own Ricky Prohl has no history in this program. All I'm saying is if, if you take the joy out of beating your rival and that's enough for you, that's fine. But most of these teams have no hope of contending for any kind of a real championship, and that's depressing. I'm going to go yell at Cloud. It's all about the bowl game. You get some money at the bowl game. They don't care. Glorified exhibition. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Speaking of exhibition, oh man, okay, Peter Keating, I want to see all of your slot, all of the exhibition. Right, there has to be oh, a better. No. I, there I has thought we were going exhibition yeah. for preseason football, not Peter's slot. I, I thought we were going to say everything's going in the wrong direction, but you know who doesn't go in the wrong direction? Slot receivers. <laughs> Because they, they got to move through traffic, they got to have good hands, and they got to know where they're going. I need your slot analysis. Okay, Peter, go for it. Peter is a well-known slot. Slot machine. Maze just chimed in. This might be the worst transition we've ever done. Okay, it's true. <laughs> and that's saying something because there's a lot of competition there. Sorry, I tried. Explain why we're looking at slots, Peter. I think what Jordan really wants to say is he wants to go back to the days where you could get talent and results out of nowhere, like Marcus Colston, a seventh-round pick out of oh. a school that no longer plays football, or Victor Cruz, who went undrafted. And both of those guys, of course, became slot receivers. We're looking at the slot because we're at the crux of huge, historic, fundamental change in what NFL teams are doing. Five years ago, we were at the crest of a movement which had taken – afterthoughts and turned them into some of the most productive players in the NFL. Talking about slot receivers. Once NFL teams, I guess, begrudgingly, I mean, I'd like to go back to Charlie Joyner or even before that to Al Davis. But I think the the real emergence of the slot receiver came with the Patriots, right? We have to give the Patriots credit for putting Wes Welker in the slot and letting him run out there 120 times a year and get targeted and somehow moving through opposing defenses and you know, if, if people are debating whether Julian Edelman's a Hall of Famer, I mean, they're going to, they, I mean, Wes Welker's case is even better, don't you think? And I think we have to give Belichick and the Patriots credit for figuring out how to make inside receivers lethal threats. And once that happened, teams started taking bigger bodies, putting them in the slot. Slot receivers do have to have good spatial awareness. They do have to move through traffic. They're usually not the prima donnas on the team who are the number one outside receivers who get all the glory because they're the guys who can just run the fastest and catch the touchdown. So these guys who started out doing a lot of dirty work, Jordan, you know that's true. Catch the touchdowns. Yes. Yes. Well, in fact, receivers who work mostly wide make a lot more money on average, whether you want to look at it per reception, per target, per touchdown, whatever. They make a lot, they get much bigger contracts than slot receivers. Anyway, this got to the point where five years ago, 
on average, this is league-wide. This is a crazy stat because you'd expect things to balance out sooner or later. But slot receivers were on average. I mean, this is from Arizona to the Patriots. They were catching the ball. They had a full yard per target more than receivers running outside routes. They were a full yard per target more efficient than receivers working other locations. Three feet, a full yard? A full yard per target. Wow. Not per catch, not per game. I'm talking about per per target. So what you're saying is there's a little bit of inefficiency in this system. Yes. Quarterbacks, quarterbacks were throwing to the slot much more effectively than they were throwing outside. Now, Jordan has questions about whether that's relevant for fantasy usage, whether whether this crazy metric called yards and the denominator of oh, don't, target. Don't even make you, – you should tread very lightly here, my friend. Which are very, very hard to guess are appropriate for measuring receiver efficiency. Very lightly. And then I'm here to tell you, gentlemen, that gap has vanished. Whoa. This year, receivers in the slot, 8.4 yards per target. Receivers in other locations, mostly running wide, mostly running outside, 8.3 yards per target. The gap has closed. I mean, we all know why. Teams started drafting, using a lot more high draft picks to pick defensive backs. It is now very common, which it was not before 2015, 2017. I love how you said we all know why, and it's a very obscure thing. Like, I, I didn't know that. Wait a minute. Where's the proof that teams are drafting more defensive backs higher? Second of all, Teams were playing nickel defenses before 2015, too. You always match up to the offense. If a team is three receivers on the field, you put extra defensive backs in. I've been doing that in Madden since 19-fucking-98. Well, um, congratulations for being, as usual, a trendsetter in <laughs> fake games. <laughs> From 2007 to 2017, targets to slot receivers increased 28%, while it, the number didn't change for receivers in other locations. That's over the 10 years leading up to 2017. That has leveled off. Now, this is also happening more often. In the past five years, teams are using multiple top three draft picks on defensive backs more often than they were before 2017. It is now common, as the Chiefs and I believe the Bears did this year, for teams to use a one and a three or a two and a three on a cornerback and a safety. No, teams are really looking as a starting secondary now of five guys. Like it's, it's you really think about linebackers as, as, as almost two. You're right, because teams are spread so often. Call me crazy, but I think there is a cause and effect relationship between the shift of more resources to the secondary and the elimination of what many coaches in college call the quote-unquote slot bonus. I just meant yeah. in college, it's it's it, it still pays to put your best big, Call your best crazy. and smartest big players in the slot. And we've seen more receivers recently coming out of college that played a majority of their snaps in the slot, even though in the pros maybe they're not going to get used that way. All right. So my question is: Amonra St. Brown won the fantasy league that I was a part of last year because of his run in the second half of the year. Basically, I mean, was he besides Cooper Cup? Was he like the fantasy football MVP last year? I mean, for his run in the playoffs was incredible. What is what do the numbers say about him, and what does that mean for the rest of the study that you did? Everything depends on how how good quarterbacks are, where they like to throw, whether teams have alternate resources to use. But there are some players who are you being used in the slot who are actually way more effective outside the slot. And 
Amon Ross St. Brown is probably at the top of that list. He was targeted in the slot two-thirds of the time that he played, okay, that he had any targets sent to him. And his yards per target in the slot was about seven, seven yards per target in the slot, which is pretty good, but it was up near 10 outside the slot. Now, does that immediately mean they should send him wide more often? Maybe not. Maybe they don't have anybody else who can play in the slot. Maybe the quarterback likes to throw to him there. But it does. there are players like him who are even more efficient when they're running wide than when they're in the slot, even though they're slot receivers. And he's probably one of them. Um, you think, I mean, is there anyone on the Lions who could take his place in the slot? I mean, do they, do they have guys they like better outside? I mean, you have to look at that on a team-by-team basis. I mean, I'm interested, like Jalen Waddle's a good example. I mean, Jalen Waddle is running in the slot because um, Tua ha- had to make short, safe passes, right? So Jalen Waddle racked up huge yardage in the slot. Uh, however, he's almost three yards better, three yards per target better outside the slot. So if they could ever work him into more usage wide, he'd probably be even more efficient, more effective. If I start reading about Waddle being more used outside the slot, maybe I need to draft him higher in my draft. Yes? Yeah. And I'm wondering about Jacoby Myers in New England, too. He's been touted for a long time as— I'm often wondering about Jacoby Myers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, (laughs) Jacoby Myers uh, had 6.5 yards per target in the slot last year. 8.5 outside the slot. Now, I know he's been touted for a long time as Julian Edelman's replacement. I know New England is very attached to their, or the fans are, Patriots fans are very attached to their coming out of nowhere slot guys. Um, But I can't see that big a gap lasting if Bill Belichick has anyone else that he could slide into slot and use Myers a little more outside. So I think those are a few guys to watch. All right. One more if I can. NPK on Elijah Moore. Elijah Moore. More, more, more. The Jets have all these guys who they talk about as potentially being great slot receivers. Some of them are Braxton Barrios, Jamison Crowder. They were both very effective in the slot. Elijah Moore is more effective outside. For all the reasons we outlined about why he could have a breakout year, one of them is that he's almost three full yards per target better outside the slot. And if they just let Barrios or Crowder work the slot, or if they use Garrett Wilson. NPK, NPK, bring it back. Let Elijah Moore rip it wide. Let Elijah Moore rip it outside. He's ready to convert his efficiency outside the slot into a greater number of yards over a greater range of targets. Stretch him out. So I think lest I be accused of calling you crazy, the tricky thing is that it's sometimes harder to throw outside. You have to protect your quarterback better. You have to be able to have a quarterback with arm strength to make certain kinds of throws. So what I worry about in a little bit of this is that some of these receivers who maybe have fewer outside targets for a reason, that they can't design enough things to get them the ball consistently outside, it's easier to consistently target someone out of the slot because these are typically shorter throws, quick slants, stuff over the middle, etc. So what I wonder is if it's not quite as simple as let's move player X outside more 
and his production will automatically increase. The other thing is in PPR leagues, I wonder if there still is value to being in the slot because then you're not just getting, even if the yards have evened out, if there's a higher catch percentage, if there's more targets, more receptions in the slot, are you still, especially in DFS, which is either half point on FanDuel or full point in DraftKings per reception, is there still a benefit or am I still looking for guys who line up in the slot a good amount of the time because that will add to their total catches. All right. So Jordan, let me take those one at a time. There's something called a Nash equilibrium. Is this when your best player uh, demands that you be fired? No, this is not Steve Nash. This is actually named after John Nash. A beautiful mind. A beautiful mind. The mathematician. Yes. So basically, if there's a big gap, okay, for example, teams, most teams get a lot more yards per target by throwing the ball than they do yards per carry by running the ball. And this has led stat heads for a long time, analytics to say, well, then you should throw more often. Does it automatically mean that your entire offense will become as efficient as it is during passing situations now? No. Obviously, if you shift resources towards doing what you're better at, the defenses will key more on that and you'll become less effective at doing it until things balance out. Now, now the numbers show that is what has happened overall, throwing to the slot and throwing outside the slot. That is now equal league-wide. But there are still players who are much better outside or inside the slot, even though they're not being used that way. So if you send a guy outside, will he automatically maintain his better performance? No, it will come down. But until it comes down to the level of how he's doing in the slot, all I'm saying is that analytics, I think you would agree with this, might suggest that they give it a try. If there's not obvious reasons to avoid doing it. Because if somebody has a three yards per target difference, I mean, that's the, that's the difference between, you know, Cooper Cup and Sterling Shepard or something, right? Like you want to see how far they can extend their greater efficiency over a wider number of targets. Now, the question about um, is it better to have a lot of catches or a lot of yards per catch? Okay, that does get wiped out when you look at yards per target, because if you think about it, yards per target is just catches per target times yards per catch, right? So you can get a lot of yards per target by catching a lot of stuff or by catching a much smaller percentage, but going far deeper, right? So that's what we're going to look at next. We're going to look at guys, receivers. That's the next part of this whole process. We're going to look at receivers who had basically equal yards per target, but got to them totally differently. We're going to look at a group of guys who have high catching percentages versus high yards per catch. Even though they're on average, their efficiency numbers in real life will come out the same. We're going to look to see which group had more fan, better fantasy performance. Right. So Jalen Waddell, to bring him back, was really valuable in DraftKings, especially late last season, because he was even if he was only posting 77 yards, he was doing it on like nine, 10 catches. So that's nine or 10 more fantasy points. Whereas a guy who's getting 77 yards on three catches in PPR, way less valuable. So you want the guy who they're just peppering with targets, at least in a PPR league. So I, I think I think it's still worth looking at total targets in the slot. Sure, but there are also a lot of leagues where the depth of, the depth of your scoring matters a lot, yes. right? And if they're peppering you with short targets, you're just literally never going to have a 68-yard touchdown. Correct. I'm, I'm actually in a league that gives a 
it's not PPR at all, and it gives a point bonus for every 10 yards on a touchdown. So, like, if you have an 80-yard touchdown, I think it's 20 points total. Yeah, the league I played in forever was like that, and I'm a fan of the old Raiders, so I love vertical targets. So, yes, am I biased completely in favor of the guy who has, like, three catches and 1,200 yards. Oh my God, you're Al Davis. Yeah, I love those players. And and I love the Raiders picking the guy they think is the fastest man in the draft. James Jett, remember him? Who turns out to barely be able to play football again and again and again and again because, because it's an inefficiency and an in, basically an incompetence that has actually survived Al Davis and been passed down to his literal descendants. And it, and it, and it persists even though it's ridiculous. I love it when something that persistent happens. Do you have a Deshaun Jackson jersey from the Raiders right now? Well, I don't even know if you remember when the, when the when the Giants punted the ball straight to oh, God. Deshaun Jackson. Oh. I got sicker that night than I have ever been for non-medical reasons in my entire life. Deshaun Jackson, great guy, represents, you know, LA and I won't even but but you know, again and again year after year he just showboated his way to murdering the Giants. So, no, that's a fine example for anyone except me. I, I, it's just, no, 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 no. There, there'll be no, there'll be no Deshaun Jackson on these spreadsheets. But yes, that's, but that's the general point. Well, there you have it. Slot rankings, lukewarm slot takes from <laughs> Peter Keating. I am so glad we got that. And there's going to be more. This is strong. This is strong coffee that Jordan just tries to pour a lot of milk in, okay? This is, these are, these are hot takes. What did you learn today, Tom? Well, I learned that Cooper Cup is good at football and USC has a good chance to climb from fifth to fourth this year. Thank you. <laughs> Get Jacoby Myers and Amara St. Brown and Elijah Moore out of the slot is what you learned. And let Jalen do more than waddle, okay? Okay.